It's the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Stand up, stand up. You've been sitting way too long. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. My name is Steve Scroven, along with my co-host, David Feldman. Hello, David. Good morning. And, of course, the man of the hour, Ralph Nader. Hello, Ralph. Hi. Coming up, you're going to hear about how elections can be changed by an outpouring of the youth vote, 18 to 29. That's right, Ralph. The Republican Party is intent on using the levers of power they control to smother democracy. And in that regard, 2023 is shaping up to be a banner year. According to the Brennan Center for Justice, in 32 different state legislatures, Republicans have introduced at least 150 bills that restrict access to the ballot box. These bills target a wide range of marginalized groups. But today, we're going to be talking about young voters. States like Ohio, North Carolina, and Texas are explicitly targeting voters aged 18 to 29. However, there is one group fighting it back against this, quote, generational gerrymandering, unquote a nonpartisan organization called Civic Influencers. Civic Influencers works hyper-locally in targeted districts to amplify the voting power of young voters and engage newly eligible voters with a two-pronged approach. One, they hire and train young people on campuses to inspire their peers to vote. And two, they work with campus administration to help make it easier for students to vote. Our guest today will be Maxim Thorne, activist, educator, and chief executive of Civic Influencers. We'll speak to him about their recent successes, their strategies for 2023-24, and what sets his group apart from other get-out-the-vote campaigns. Then Ralph is going to rifle through our listener questions and feedback, and he's also got some news items to discuss. And as always, somewhere in the middle, we'll check in with our relentless corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. But first, let's fight back against generational gerrymandering with Maxim Thorne. David? Maxim Thorne is a lawyer, activist, philanthropist, and a lecturer at Yale. He has worked with the NAACP, Human Rights Campaign, New Jersey Head Start Association, GLAD, the Executive Committee of the Yale Law School, and the Yale Alumni Task Force on Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. He currently serves as Chief Executive of Civic Influencers, a nonpartisan organization dedicated to inspiring young people to make their voices heard and their votes count. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Maxim Thorne. Thank you, it's great to be here. Welcome indeed, Maxim. And listeners should know that Maxim and his colleagues are working on the project to get young voters to vote, and it could be decisive in the 2024 elections, especially in key states where they're concentrating. Four million 18-year-olds joined the United States voting ranks in 2021. So every year, about 4 million new voters. And traditionally, the rate of voter turnout among young people from 18 to 29 has been the lowest of any age group. And Maxim's group, the Civic Influencers, are fanning out all over the country and district after district with volunteers to turn that around. And before I ask you the first question, Maxim, I want to read a paragraph from the letter to the editor you sent to the Washington Post, which is how we learned about what you're doing. This is April 26, 2023. Quote, in Ohio, student identification no longer qualifies as a valid form of voter ID. In North Carolina, Republicans are seeking to follow in China's, in Ohio's footsteps. 
Texas is considering banning college polling stations and making voter fraud a felony. According to the Brennan Center for Justice, at least 150 bills restricting access to the ballot box have been introduced in 32 state legislatures this year. I might add, vast majority controlled by Republicans, the governor and legislature. Continuing, these measures represent nothing less than generational gerrymandering, the naked attempt to dilute the voting power of marginalized communities and especially young people, end quote. Now, I take it the young people are from age 18 to 29. Is that correct? That is correct. And just for starters, because our listeners like to know, you've been doing this pretty intensively and very much involved in the 2022 elections in swing states. Has NPR or PBS ever had you on? Not yet. Not yet. I don't know what they're waiting for. They have a lot of frivolous programs on. Well, I do want to address what you just said, because it is puzzling to me until you realize how young people have been ignored for the most part since 1971, when the 26th Amendment was passed that lowered the voting age to 18. And they were basically disregarded as a political force other than the Vietnam War protests until we get to Obama and Hillary Clinton's primary election. But after 2012, the folks who did not miss their importance, which was basically the GOP, they went all out to remove young people from being able to vote at the rates they had voted in 2008 and 2012 for Obama. So that in 2016, we had the full impact of voter suppression, what I call generational gerrymandering, affecting young people. But the media outlets were just missing this surgical attempt to stop young people from voting that started in 2013, the year after Obama's last victory. And it was not until 2018, and we were seeing some scandalous things like Florida banning polling sites from all college campuses, that we finally got the first New York Times article by Michael Wines. And then we got a Washington Post article, and that finally started getting the attention. But in terms of broadcasters like NPR and so forth, they have been very slow to realize the power of this generation and also the right's attempt to just remove them from our democracy. And you have a whole number of issues that they're very concerned about. It's not just turning out and being a good citizen. What are some of the major issues you think will motivate them to turn out in greater numbers next year? They want climate change to be addressed. They want gun violence to be addressed. They don't want to lose constitutional rights, like the right to have an abortion. They want to make sure, and this, and this is like, like incredibly important, that we are not trading off their values. We knew from our data, because we do a lot of data-driven research, we knew from our data of the last two years that young people were really focused on a lot of issues, like I just mentioned, and they weren't going to trade it off for gas prices and inflation. They were going to vote their values, a whole coherent packet of values, and they were not going to trade off as they saw other generations do. And that made us know that there was never going to be a red tsunami if young people could help it. And they did help it. Maxim, how about two other issues? Student loan forgiveness issues, which are in the news. And young people are really rising up to support unions, aren't they? Yes, they are. Yes, they are. Think about the older generations who were all about 
reducing their taxes for a lot of folks who, who vote only pocketbook issues. And yet those people don't realize that young people also have pocketbook issues, but it's not to give them access to more commodities. It's literally to get an education. And we have hamstrung this generation and, and hopefully we will not continue to do that, future generations, because we're saying that to just have access to a community college, to a trade school, to a vocational school and a technical school, they have to incur debt. They have to incur debt. And that debt, they don't see any way inside of paying it back given the state of the jobs and the rate of which they can be paid. So one, they're arguing that they need to have their debt forgiven. And two, that they need to have access to jobs that pay them a living wage that would allow them to actually have a decent middle-class life, but at minimum be able to pay off the loans if you did not forgive it. And neither of those are coming true. And, and then for the, so Ralph, the thing that really gets in my craw, when we think how important young people are to saving our democracy and voting on pro-democracy candidates and voting on those issues like climate change and abortion rights and LGBTQ rights, is that what are we giving them? If you are not moving to relieve their student debt and you're not moving to allow them to organize so they get better paid jobs that allow them to live a decent life, you're not giving that most important part of our electorate what they need and what they're demanding. I hope that in your educating aspect of these youngsters, you will open up the whole area of corporate control. Well over 75% of the American people think corporations have too much control over their lives. That's a lot of conservative as well as liberals. And are you trying to get them earlier? Because I'm sure you know that if you get kids early before they are 18, you're more likely to have them predisposed to really become active participants when they become 18. So where are you in the 16-year-old vote? And are you trying to reach even younger children as well? What you said should be eye-opening for everyone who is listening and participating in this conversation. The challenges of young people playing their rightful role in our democracy are huge, are huge. We have removed a lot of civics education, like the way they remove music and education from K through 12. We are paying catch up to help young people understand our federal system, our state government system, and how it works. What is the judiciary? What's the executive? What's the legislative branch, both in the state and in the federal system? Because they don't get a lot of that now. So a lot of other organizations in the past, not that there were many, in fact, at one point it was virtually none focused on young people being engaged in voting was all about ballot access issues. How do we lower the barriers to help young people get to the ballot box? That's even before we had these horrible generational gerrymandering tactics like banning polling sites from college campuses in Florida and so forth. However, the social science research is pretty clear. You can build a road to a store, but if no one wants what's in that store, they're not gonna take the road. And so we realized two years ago in 2021, that we needed to do a pivot. Yes, we will focus on ballot access issues, but you had to create the demand to vote. Why do you want to vote? And what we do realize is when you flip that script and you say, do you want to protect the climate? Is your issue reproductive justice and freedom? Is your issue racial justice and mass incarceration or police violence? Is your issue LGBTQ access to jobs and housing and healthcare? And if that is so, how can you move the needle towards what you would like to do? 
And what we found is then once they knew they wanted to fight to reform our criminal justice system, they wanted to fight to save the climate, they wanted to fight on ESG, they wanted to fight on abortion rights, then they wanted to make sure they had a polling site on the campus to make it easy to vote. Then they wanted to make sure that their student IDs were compliant with voter IDs, or they tried to fight, as they're doing in Ohio, fight these ridiculous, onerous restrictions on how young people are able to vote. And so we focus both on demand, figuring out what young people care about, and helping them connect that to the issues and to voting, and then also lowering the barriers that they're facing to be able to vote. And that is making a dramatic difference. We're talking with Maxine Thorne, who is executive director of Civic Influencers and working on campuses all over the country. Well, you know, young people are concerned about getting adequate health insurance. They know what redlining is when they know how hard it is to get housing. The price of tenancy is sky high. You know, this is the only Western so-called democracy that introduces young people to a massive life of debt at a very early age. In other countries, the tuition is part of the tax system. They don't push people out with tens of thousands of dollars out of college with tuition burdens. So let's talk about generic issues here. What if we had universal voting? Your job would be minimized. You'd be talking about the content of the vote, the subject matter, the issues on the ballot, the candidates' positions and record. In Australia and about 12 other countries, voting is a civic duty. And you can just go to vote. You have to vote. But you can, you can put in your own name. You can put in your Aunt Mamie's name. You just have to express yourself. And so they have over 90% turnout. In our country, we're lucky if we get over 60% turnout. It's part of your education, Maxim, to show what fundamental reforms are so we don't have to spend endless time, money, knocking on doors, begging people to vote. Yes, we have long-term strategies and short-term existential strategies. I think one needs to have both tracks going, but the immediate existential threats to our democracy that certainly became apparent during the insurrection of January 6th and attempted coup has really rocked our work. And we see the need for what we're doing to get to scale urgently and to get to scale in a way that is most impactful. So in the past, we used to focus broadly, 50 states and the territories, because everyone has a right to be able to vote if they're eligible. However, we have been faced with just cunning and evil voter suppression, generational gerrymandering, blocking young people from voting, like, as you mentioned, not allowing them to use their student ID cards. And when you take into account students at a community college, at a trade, technical, and vocational school, who are among the most marginalized and disenfranchised. They don't have any other IDs. They don't have driver's license. They tend to live in urban areas, for example. When you say, as is happening in Ohio, you can't vote on Mondays, you literally are not allowed, even if you have early voting, you can't vote the day before the Tuesday election. And by the way, Governor DeWine of Ohio signed that, that gerrymandering law affecting young people on the anniversary of the insurrection in Washington, D.C., on January 6th of this year. So these people are deadly serious about removing young people from, from the voting rolls. What we're doing, and we've had to do given our limited budget, is then focus on the places, those strategic places 
that young people can actually swing the election on the issues they care about. So for example, in 2020, when we, we did our, our analysis of those elections, some folks won by three votes. This is, this is congressional elections, three votes, 109 votes, 133 votes, 333 votes. In 2022, last year, 34 races were won by less than 1%. So if you look at Colorado 3, Lauren Boebert's district, she had the tightest margin, 465 votes. John Duarte in California, he won by 565 votes. One of the things that we use this data for and why we target young people, particularly young people of color, particularly young people who are community colleges, trade, technical, and vocational schools, is because we can show them the power of their vote. That's the marching band, the glee club, the gospel choir, the football team, the cheerleaders alone could swing that election. Their one dorm can swing that election. That is power. So when, when they think, I don't have power, the margin was 565. The margin was 455. The margin was three votes. And when you go to state elections, it becomes very real and very doable. So while we do have long-term strategies about election reform and automatic voter registration and so forth, we have an immediate need to make sure that young people are voting where they can immediately get wins that make them happy. They can immediately get wins on people who agree to address climate change, people who agree to help them with student debt, people who agree to allow organizing of labor to get better wages and better healthcare. Those are the things that have made the difference and stopped the red tsunami last year. I think that is what is the most disruptive thing that we were forced to do, to think about where can we stop this precipice into the, you know, an abyss of totalitarianism or abyss to fascism so that young people can actually have a chance to hold on to our democracy. So we show them the power of their votes at these tight margin races. And we have on our website all the various places that just a few votes by young people can make all the difference. In now give your website so our listeners can follow up and tell them what's on your website. Yes, thank you, Ralph. So our website is civicinfluencers.org, civicinfluencers.org. And you will see, I think, entertaining and fun tabs like young people can swing elections. And on that page, you will actually see a state-by-state analysis of where young people can swing statewide races, like for the U.S. Senate or for the presidency, where they can swing House districts, where they can swing any other number of races. We also have a, a tab called Mobilizing the Margins, which is literally showing you over time how margins of these election outcomes have been decreasing year after year. So the people are winning elections by three votes, 109 votes, 333 votes, 565 votes, 645 votes. And with your help, with your help, you can actually shift the entire national conversation about voting in our democracy by focusing on movement building of young people, helping them connect the issues, whether it's climate change, healthcare, abortion rights, LGBTQ rights, mass incarceration, how you can build a movement and not be only candidate focused. I wanna give you an example of what I'm saying. Candidates come and go. That should not be the end of our democracy because they came and went. Young people should be able to take that baton generation to generation to carry on a democracy. So think of two victories I wanna highlight. Amazing victories in which unexpectedly both of these candidates increased their margin of victory. Alyssa Slotkin 
Michigan 8, now Michigan 7, her district in Michigan, or Abigail Spangberger in Virginia, or say Katie Potter, California 47. Why do I highlight this? Well, because Elissa Scotkin has a war chest of 5.8 million, and Katie Porter also has a, a war chest of million, and both are now running for their respective U.S. Senate seats in California and in Michigan. But both of those districts are highly competitive, highly competitive. And so Elissa pulled off an amazing win, as did Katie Porter. But now that money is going to be put into their Senate races. One has to start from scratch to now build up whoever is going to be running in those congressional districts. That is not the way you hold on to democracy. We need a movement of young people that is maintained, that infrastructure that must be maintained that we did for community colleges, trade, technical, and vocational schools, as well as other four-year campuses, that they continue to advocate on the issues they care about, women's right to choose, abortion rights, climate change, student debt, and that continues whichever candidate arises. And the problem in our country is it is so candidate-driven and not movement-building driven that we, are, we have to always restart building our infrastructure. So our organization made a big pivot in 2021 that we are not cyclical. We keep our funded students on the ground year in and year out, federal election year or not a federal election year, so that they are constantly organizing even today to make sure that when we get to fall of this year and fall of 2024, they have been building momentum. And that is why this year, 2023, there were amazing victories for the Supreme Court in Wisconsin, for the mayor of Chicago, for the victory in Colorado Springs, for the amazing victory in Tallahassee. It is because we are maintaining momentum even in off years. And people have to invest in this movement building young people strategy right now if we're going to have any chance in 2024. And it's not just changing national election outcomes, but they go to the polls, they're going to affect state and local outcomes as well. Before we get into how you actually organize the campus and events, Maxim, what do you do for the millions of young people who are not in college at all, not in community college, technical schools, four years? How are you reaching them? Because their voting turnout sometimes is 10, 12 percent. I agree. Part of our long-term strategy the fact of the matter is, Ralph, we don't have the funds, other than using social media, which I know that you have some challenges around. We don't do much because we can't. It was a huge disruption in the entire ecosystem when civic influencers decided we also had to include community colleges, trade, technical, and vocational schools. I dare anyone to find me anyone else who's even taking on that. And what we, what we recognized in the COVID years is that we had the sharpest decline in four-year college enrollment. And a lot of even middle-class and upper-middle-class people felt they were not going to pay four-year college tuition for a Zoom year or two in college. And so what we actually had was, surprisingly to some, but not to us, a more white community college enrollment. And we also saw that now 16, 16%, about 60% of high school graduates are now going to trade technical and vocational schools. That's 5.5 million students. So that is, in a sense, its own brand new sphere of influence that we could help young people access. To get into the other millions who are not 
going on to any form of higher education is something that has to be done, but there is literally no funding. And given the existential threat that we're experiencing and also the ability that we can help these particular students make their voices heard in key areas where there's a chance of flipping or swinging or holding on to an election because the margins are so low, we focus that. But we do need to make sure that we are funding a long-term strategy as well. But the truth is, right now, Ralph, we are trying to fund key locations that and we've identified 34 house races alone. We've identified at least eight, probably more, Senate races. And of course, we've had down the ballot races that young people can make the difference. And that's where we're pouring most of our resources in through 2024. It's really amazing how after the civil rights battles made obstructing African-Americans and others from voting, after the civil rights battles and the civil rights laws in the 1960s and 70s, most people thought that battle was over. You know, that it's up to you to vote and no one's going to obstruct you. And along come some of these right wing corporate lawyers for the GOP and they say, hey, we can develop all kinds of ways to harass, delay, expunge, purge, and not count votes. And that's what a lot of the Republican governors are doing from Florida to Texas. Now, Governor Abbott of Texas, one of the cruelest, he isn't taking ready federal funds to expand Medicaid, and people are dying in Texas because they're poor and they can't have health insurance, or they're getting sick and not treated. He just came out to make what he calls voter fraud a felony. In other words, people who vote who are not supposed to be voting, or people who vote twice or three times. Well, we know it from the evidence, so that's minuscule at all. But on the other hand, Governor Abbott is suppressing votes, obstructing votes, and there's no criminal penalty. It's just politics as usual. You know, that's what politicians do to win elections. So I'm wondering, do you have a Southern strategy here? Because there's a pronounced difference in terms of access to the voting booth in Northern states, much more freer, liberal, much more advanced days before election, absentee voting, drop boxes. In the South, it's turning into a a regimented, dictatorial-type system that just happens to be aimed at low-income people and minorities. Do you have a Southern strategy here on the campuses? Yes. Yes. We do. We do. And I'm glad you asked me that, because it's so important to understand the, the, the many dimensions of what Governor Lee in Tennessee, what Governor Abbott, what Governor DeWine, and what Governor DeSantis and others are doing to chill and frighten young voters from voting. So while it is ludicrous to think that we're going to have felony charges and that we are going to criminalize voter registration, there have been so many attempts. You know, we have a lawsuit. We were represented by the Elias Law Group, Mark Elias Law Group in Ohio around what Governor DeWine has done on the anniversary of January 6th to chill and prevent young people from voting. And similarly in Tennessee and similarly in Texas. And of course, we won a lawsuit, by the way, in Florida. Perkins Coey represented us where they banned polling sites. And it was the first case that where the, the federal court said that what they did violated the 26th Amendment. The 26th Amendment is the amendment that lowered the voting age to 18 and said you cannot discriminate in voting based on age. When you only banned polling sites from college campuses, you didn't ban them from nursing homes. 
You didn't ban them from McDonald's. You didn't ban them from Main Street. You were clearly using one criteria, age. That is what we know about college campuses. And we won that. But here's the thing. There's a reason they're threatening felonies, right? Because it scares even our funded fellows, our civic influencers who are helping their peers organize and register to vote and get out to vote. I had one of our fellows who in Louisiana say to me, and she's now at Georgetown Law School. She is, you know, passionate. She cares, but she is terrified. She was terrified of continuing to do this work because if she got arrested, even if we said, you know, we would help and it's, it's unlikely, the chilling effect on young people who are trying to protect their future, especially young people of color, who the last thing they want is an infraction with the police and being arrested is significant. And I want your, your listeners to understand, it is not just the ludicrousness, it's not just, but it's just trying to scare the hell out of young people from even registering to vote. And uh, uh, much less doing all the other things we'd like organizers to build their strengths so they could argue for a better America and a better environment for themselves. And that is what these governors are doing. And we're helping them. So besides trying to fund every year, regardless of whether it's a federal election or not, activists and organizers on these campuses, especially now, by the way, this is July. July and August are when these colleges, community colleges, four-year colleges, trade, technical, and vocational schools have their student orientation. That is the best possible time for us to get in there and help them register to vote, understand where the polling sites are, and understand what they're going to be arguing for and advocating for over the next year. We got to get them now, not next year in 2024, but now to build that momentum. And also to address the issues, don't be afraid of all the things you're hearing, but because we can help you. And so we try to put together a panel of lawyers that could actually help people in Texas, help people in North Carolina, Nevada, Arizona, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, all the places that we know bad things could happen or are happening. And so our Southern strategy is information, education, advocacy, and organizing maintaining funded students on these campuses year round that could combat the level of fear and chilling effect that these governors want them to have. And you also have to do it in two stages. You've got to register them. Then you have to have them vote. You provide transportation, which is key. I always thought bringing people to vote as an event, which is what they do in Australia, they make it a festive event and have some refreshments and people go out to vote. Are you trying to also have events? I know when I was at school, when candidates came, it stirred things up and it encouraged people to vote. And are you having events where candidates come? And also, are you encouraging young people to run as candidates themselves at the local level, for example? It seems to me that's all part of a, of a formula that gets youngsters more excited. Getting youngsters very excited is what we're all about and making it easy, entertaining, enjoyable, and a duty, all of them. Events are important, and it could be musical events, right? Part of, of what we have to understand of the zeitgeist of Gen Z and younger millennials is they think of the world differently than boomers or Gen X, et cetera. They connect music and politics in a different way. Probably they go back to the civil rights movement, Julian Bond and, and so forth, who connected music, Harry Belafonte and Lena Horne with movement building. This generation is doing it. We have to get on board with that. 
and they're doing it, I know, in ways that are different with TikTok and Twitter and Snapchat, et cetera. So we have been mastering how they communicate and how they engage. How are they messaging candidate information? Candidate information, you know, the voter guides that say we did 10 years ago are radically different than what we do today. In those days, even in 2020, one published, you know, these tomes written by established journalists, multiple pages, and you mail them out. No one was reading it when we did our research on the 2020 voter guides. What do we do today? We create a series of TikTok videos. Seriously, we create 22 word Twitter things that build momentum, tell the story in your own way about why this is important to you or who is saying something that's aligned with you or not aligned with you and making it bite-sized, making it not dense and doing it over time, but particularly closer to elections. It takes more time, it takes more creativity, more ingenuity to do it. But authentic speakers, it's not me, Ralph, and no offense because you are adored by so many, it's not you either. It is peer-to-peer -peer communications about candidates. It is peer-to-peer -peer events that they invite various people from various points of views to come. They're a little bit challenge because they have to operate in a nonpartisan. So you have to have a Republican and a Democrat or a Green Party, et cetera, all at the same time. And if one person refuses, it, it happens, it's a bit challenging. But they do have events that are fun, like puppies at the polls or pizza at the polls or party at the polls. All of those things, we help fund, folks. We help fund because especially when you're dealing with less resource, less wealthy institutions like community colleges, like trade technical vacations with the plumbing school, the massage school, the beauty school, They're, they don't have resources to help people get to the polls. So we actually try to help them apply to get a polling site on campus, to get a shuttle. And by the way, when you have redistricting and every, every time the lines change, your district change, that's new information, new TikTok videos, new, new ways you have to share that information. And so being nimble, being fresh, being young, being fun is all part of why we win. And we yeah. have won a lot in 2022, as you saw. I like the way you're trying to get the students to have a higher estimate of their own significance. Because, you know, they go around basically in various verbal approaches. They're saying, I'm a nobody. I don't count. Nobody listens to me. So you're trying to raise their own estimate of significance by saying, look, in these areas, you can swing the election. You can change the votes in Congress and state legislatures. David? With Congressman Maxwell Frost, are you finding an appetite among young people to run for office? And do young candidates bring out the youth vote? Brilliant question. Yes. And it should be obvious. It should be obvious. My fear about our democracy, I, I think we're going to overcome it because Maxwell Frost got elected as a young man, energizing, very charismatic, representing so many different constituencies, is that we are not listening to now the largest eligible voting bloc in America. 18 to 29 year olds have surpassed baby boomers, folks. They've surpassed. 20% of this generation considers themselves in the LGBTQ spectrum. When I was in college, I was three or 10%. Now it's 20%. Their values are, are dramatically different, but the candidates that are being presented do not represent the racial diversity, the gender diversity, the sexual orientation diversity that these young people are demanding to see themselves in it. And when they do see it, wow, 
outlier successes, Maxwell Frost's success. Look how close Mandela Barnes came in Wisconsin. No one was even funding that campaign. Look at the fact that so many people got gaslit to believe, and this is just a data point, that Lauren Borbert would win by a landslide. And she had the tightest, the tightest margin of 565 votes last year which the Pueblo Community College could have swung that election. And that is what we need to do. Younger candidates, diverse candidates, that people can relate to in this generation. And I love, you know, the fact that we don't discriminate against the elderly, but we certainly are discriminated against young people. We are certainly, I see polling sites going on and have gone on in my grandparents' building who are now deceased. But like in lower Manhattan, there was never not a polling site on Bleecker Street in where senior citizens were living. But where young people, like at Bard College in Dutchess County in New York, no polling site. They've been involved in lawsuits for years. And that is, we have a generational gerrymandering problem. And if progressive people want to win and pro-democracy people want to win, we need to shift that and fund where young people congregate, where they congregate, at colleges, community colleges, trade, technical, vocational schools. And you don't have to argue the issues. They want to protect the climate. They want freedom. They want to be less anti-Black racist. They want all the things we believe in is just getting them the access to be able to vote. Thank you very much. We're out of time. We've been speaking with Maxim Thorne, executive director of his group, Civic Influencers. You can go to civicinfluencers.org get all kinds of detail, geographical, other kinds of opportunities to help get the vote out in the coming election, and uh, to set new traditions for civic and political responsibility on the part of the sovereign people. After all, that's where the Constitution places the power in our country. It starts with we the people, not we the Congress or we the corporations. Thank you very much, Maxim, and good luck to you. Thank you so much. An honor. We've been speaking with Maxim Thorne. We've linked to civic influencers at ralphnaderradiohour.com. Up next, Ralph will answer some of your listener questions, and he's got some news items to go through too. But first, let's check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. From the National Press Building in Washington, D.C., this is your Corporate Crime Reporter Morning Minute for Friday, July 14, 2023. I'm Russell Mokhyber. AT&T, Verizon, and other telecom giants have left behind a sprawling network of cables covered in toxic lead that stretches across the United States, under the water, and in the soils and on poles overhead. As the lead degrades, it is ending up in places where Americans live, work, and play. That's according to a report in the Wall Street Journal. The lead can be found on the banks of the Mississippi River in Louisiana, the Detroit River in Michigan, the Willamette River in Oregon, and the Passaic River in New Jersey, according to the journal's tests of samples from nearly 130 underwater cable sites. The metal has tainted the soil at a popular fishing spot in New Iberia, Louisiana, at a playground in Wappingers Falls, New York, and in front of a school in suburban New Jersey. For the Corporate Crime Reporter, I'm Russell Mulkyler. Thank you, Russell. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. I'm Steve Scrovan, along with David Feldman and Ralph. And before we get to our long-awaited listener questions, Ralph, there were a few news items you wanted to comment on. Yeah, first is good news. Due to the Chemical Weapons Convention of 1997, signed on to by 192 countries, the U.S. has destroyed the last of its chemical weapons in Colorado. It's a very intricate and difficult process to do safely. 
And so under this convention, there are no chemical weapons available for warfare. By way of saying, treaties are a good idea. And in the last 15, 20 years, we've been withdrawing from treaties instead of developing treaties like cybersecurity treaties or public health pandemic, anti-pandemic treaties or consumer protection treaties. So that's good news. The second is not enough attention is paid to the collateral consequences of the Iraq war. Instead of our government demanding an unconditional ceasefire and high-level negotiations, we are pumping the war up with more and more destructive weapons, which are going to be reaching Russian territory and enlarging the prospects of a larger war. But the worst thing is that Biden has decided to send cluster bombs, old ones with very high dud rates that can blow up kids because they look like little toys months and years later, to Ukraine. We do not belong to the international treaty that bans the production and distribution of cluster bombs, nor does Russia, nor does China, nor does Israel, but most nations do. And now there's a big backlash against Biden doing this. They haven't been shipped yet. And I think public opinion may have a big sway. I know people who've been working to get rid of cluster bomb usage are going to call every time a Ukrainian child is blown up by one of these cluster bombs that Biden sends over. They're going to call it the Biden bomb. So Biden better rethink this and withdraw. He's got a lot of allies in Western Europe that are telling him to do so. By the way, in addition to sending cluster bombs to Ukraine, Biden is sending Abram tanks whose shells are coated with depleted uranium that contaminated and caused cancer all over Ukraine. So, you know, with friends like this, how does Ukraine need enemies? They're going to contaminate the country they're saying they're defending, and they're going to litter it with cluster bombs that, as in Cambodia and Laos, compliments of Kissinger and Nixon, are still killing two to 300 children a year who stumble on these in the fields or in the woods, and they look like uh, little candy bars, and they pick them up and it blows up on them. The third item is we've been informed that there's going to be an imminent extradition of Julian Assange from a prison in England back to the United States. Imagine, imagine someone who exposes official government crimes, war crimes, the Fourth Amendment, snooping crimes, etc., is being extradited back by the criminal class itself that wants to keep engaging in these war crimes and violations of our Constitution. So keep a heads up on that forthcoming news story. Another one is a study by Oxfam, the peace group out of England. They said if there is a 5% tax on the multimillionaire and multi-billionaires on the planet, you know, most of them are undertaxed or not taxed at all. A 5% tax will raise $1.7 trillion a year and take 2 billion people out of poverty and save endless lives and eliminate raw hunger. 5% tax. That should be discussed all over on the media, in Congress, and elsewhere. Another interesting story is coming out of Texas, 
where Governor Abbott, who has just been reelected over Beto's candidacy, he now has usurped all the cities and towns in Texas who want to raise the minimum wage, which in Texas is still the federal, $7.25. So he's, he's stripped them of their municipal autonomy on that subject and placed it in Austin where nothing's happening. He's not providing hundreds of thousands of poor Texans with Medicaid funds available from Washington. He now is pushing a law that will prevent municipalities from requiring water breaks for construction workers when the heat goes up to 100 or 110 and can be lethal. And here he is, he's just been reelected. So the question here is, what's the matter with the voters? Not just the ones that don't turn out, but the ones that turn on to candidates who attack their fundamental values in health and safety and environmental protections. So that's some of the news. I want to just direct attention of our listeners to the new edition of the Capitol Hill Citizen. 40 pages, print only, and it's full of articles you haven't read elsewhere. It reminds people of the criminal war in Iraq with interviews with Cindy Sheehan, Matthew Ho, and Dar Jamal, who were very heroic in opposing George W. Bush and Dick Cheney on that criminal war of aggression that has consequences to this day, taking over a million Iraqi lives. We have proposed a college for members of Congress, the way there's a naval war college or a defense university. Members of Congress are not aware of their full constitutional duties, of their authority to block runaway presidential military and appropriation action. It needs to be a little college nearby Congress that we have outlined. We have articles on toxic inaction, no movement in Congress on the precautionary principle. An article on members of Congress are home for August. Summon them to town meetings of your own citizens and focus on corporate power. Send them back saying to each other in the corridors on Capitol Hill, hey, something's going on back there. They're worried about corporate control of their lives. No kidding. There's an article on the military-industrial congressional complex. It's on a spending spree. A report on our new incommunicados analysis of people not getting their calls or letters answered by members of Congress and people in the executive branch, which we're going to talk about in an upcoming program. We have an article on Cornell West taking on the corporate duopoly, an article by an MIT professor showing how regulation of corporations, health and safety, can create jobs. You know, somebody's got to produce airbags, seatbelts, toxic detection equipment in the workplace, and so on. Couples, very critical articles by people who know what they're talking about on nuclear power. An article by one of the best experts, Tom Devine, how Congress needs to protect government whistleblowers. And listen to this one, an effort by towns in Delaware to give corporations the right to vote, not just property owners on tax property issues. They want to give corporations the right to vote like people. And Common Cause in Delaware, a leader is interviewed, and the title of the interview is, Should McDonald's, Verizon, and AutoZone Have the Right to Vote? And she's all over the legislature telling them no. But it shows the brazen nature of corporate power. Now they want the right to vote so they can create all kinds of 
thousands of subsidiaries and dominate elections. It's not ironic that it started in Delaware, where Joe Biden comes from. Delaware is the corporate haven for giant corporations to charter and have very permissive laws. So you can get this Capitol citizen with a nice humorous article by our own Steve Scrovan by going to CapitolHillCitizen.com. It's 40 pages. It's sent to you first class. It only costs $5. Some people are buying numerous ones for their friends and neighbors. The reaction of people who read this newspaper has been spectacular, but we have to get the word out. Okay, thanks for that, Ralph. Now let's dip into the mailbag. Ralph, let us know what's going on from our listeners. Well, one listener, Roseanne Rossillo, writes, Dear Mr. Nader, my bank recently used part of a refund I received to my credit card account, original form of payment, from an online vendor to pay off my credit balance, which was neither due or overdue. The original purchase was over $2,000 and has been paid off eight months before. I contend the bank should not have usurped my ability to decide what happened to that money, much like if it had been a cash refund. While I am able to regroup financially, what if I needed that money to replace the needed item, pay rent, get medicine, or buy food? With consumers being forced to purchase more items online, this kind of vulturous bank behavior is bound to become more prevalent and financially disempower the individual. Is there anything we can do about it? Well, there is. You can buy more products and services by using cash and check. We have a project on that, and we'll give you the contact number. That's one. And the second one is report this misbehavior to the bank commissioner of your state. This is not shades of gray. This is a raw grab, and they're likely to get a reprimand from the bank commissioners who are supposed to regulate them. It's an easy one for the bank commissioners. Thank you very much, Roseanne. Stand up. Another one is from Donald Klepak. This is a question to the entire Ralph Nader audience. Could the military-industrial media intelligence complex, the exact same people, he says, be a tool that not only makes war invisible, but be also used domestically to distract us along economic and racial and social differences, end quote. My answer is, of course. You first start with the tens of millions of dollars in the propaganda budget for domestic purposes by the Pentagon. They have people all over the country. And who are their allies? Well, Raytheon, General Dynamics, Boeing, Lockheed Martin, you know, the, the weapons of mass destruction corporations. And they have had undue influence over the American Legion, veterans of foreign wars, as the Veterans for Peace organization has pointed out from time to time, and they get almost 90% ditto-heading by the mass commercial media. You don't hear the other side. So the answer to your question is, of course. Stand up. Another one is a good one to read. It's by Howie Lisnoff. The mass media folded its, intent, its tents and disappeared into the night. The latter has been expanded with Ukraine. I had a comment posted and removed from the New York Times that made an anti-war statement about the war in Ukraine. It's awful. And it involves two nuclear powers, end quote. You're right. It is awful. In fact, there is an op-ed criticizing the way we are approaching the war in Ukraine 
by a very prominent academic. It was accepted and then pulled by the New York Times, saying they had a columnist who's going to write something like that. We haven't seen that since. Yeah, there is a party line. It beckons the terrible party lines on the war in Ukraine, the war on Libya, the war in Afghanistan. There are very few independent media sites. And I must say, on Ukraine, some of them have the same problem. We don't want to continue this war in Ukraine to the last Ukrainian family. We have to move for an unconditional ceasefire and high-level negotiations. Otherwise, get ready for year after year of gridlocked warfare, trench warfare. You don't believe it? Look at Syria. Stand up. Okay, there's one by Steve Shuttleworth. This is a good one, especially. Quote, every time I hear the word Boeing, I think of the time in 1997 when I was an employee of McDonnell Douglas Corporation. It was announced that Boeing was pursuing a merger with the McDonnell Douglas Corporation, making the only two commercial aircraft manufacturers one company. I assumed that it would never happen, as the Clinton administration would surely put the brakes on the plan in order to avoid Boeing getting monopoly power over the world's commercial airline manufacturers, their only remaining competition being Airbus in Europe. The response from Washington instead was absolute silence. As with any monopoly, the history of the 737 MAX resulted in minimal financial damage to Boeing, and with no competition, no interruption in its winning contracts with the federal government. Read the 737 MAX according to Wikipedia, quote, during the certification process, the FAA delegated many evaluations to Boeing, allowing the manufacturer to review their own product, end quote. This is the same heartwarming value to the reader as the knowledge that nuclear power plants are now performing their own safety inspections, allowing the government to save valuable taxpayer dollars. What could go wrong? End quote. Thank you for that comment, Steve. Stand up. And Romanus Buscus. Let's face it, our government's for sale and everybody knows it. There's only one issue really matters. 100% campaign finance reform. Without that, nothing is going to change. We need publicly funded elections to get our government back. Then people want to do public service instead of becoming a power-drunk millionaire. I would like to hear a podcast on that. I read that it would cost the taxpayer about 4 to $6 billion a year to publicly fund elections. That's a small price to put our government back, end quote. I might add, Romanus, that... Public funding of public campaigns is one of the greatest investments our democracy could ever make in terms of return on that expenditure. And it would certainly remove a good part of our government being for sale or for rent, incumbent by incumbent. Thank you. Then there's one by Robert Traveline. Quote, when I was young and ill-informed, I was sent to the other side of the world to fight a war profiteer's war. Now I'm a radical, ultra-left-wing liberal. I was taught by my society that maximizing wealth was the message of God, of country, and its leadership, that people didn't matter and were on their own. This is not a good country, and it must change. End quote. That speaks for itself. Thank you very much. Thank you for your questions and feedback. You know, we read them all. 
I want to thank our guest again, Maxim Thorne. For those of you listening on the radio, that's our show. For you podcast listeners, stay tuned for some bonus material we call The Wrap Up, which features Francesco DeSantis. And in case you haven't heard, we've got a lot more from uh, Maxim Thorne and a lot more from you. A transcript of this program will appear on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour Substack site soon after the episode is posted. Subscribe to us on our Ralph Nader Radio Hour YouTube channel. And for Ralph's weekly column, it's free. Go to Nader.org. For more from Russell Mokhyber, go to CorporateCrimeReporter.com. We have a new issue of the Capitol Hill Citizen. It's out now to order your copy of the Capitol Hill Citizen, Democracy Dies in Broad Daylight. Go to CapitolHillCitizen.com. And remember to continue the conversation after each show. Go to the comments section at RalphNaderRadioHour.com and post a comment or a question on this week's episode. The producers of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour are Jimmy Lee Wirt and Matthew Marin. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our theme music, Stand Up, Rise Up, was written and performed by Kemp Harris. Our proofreader is Elizabeth Solomon. Our associate producer is Hannah Feldman. Our social media manager is Stephen Wendt. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. We'll be discussing the Incommunicados Report with our good friend, Bruce Fine. Thank you, Ralph. Thank you, everybody. And listeners, become a Capitol Hill citizen. Obtain the brand new issue, 40 pages in print only, of the Capitol Hill Citizen. By going to CapitolCitizen.com, you'll be enthralled, stimulated, and perhaps motivated to become a Capitol Hill citizen, about which we will talk more in coming programs. Hi, this is Jimmy Lee Word, and welcome to The Wrap-Up. We continue our conversation with Maxim Thorne. How are you raising your money, and from who? Well, I love that question. So, you know, I have been doing this kind of work for over two decades. And there's something that is remarkable about Gen Z, but also the opportunities of this moment. Gen Z has rejected binaries of all kinds. They have overlapping multiple identities. As I said, they don't trade off climate change for gas prices. They don't trade off abortion rights for student debt. They want it all at the same time. And what they also say, they make friends everywhere. And that, is, that has been a wake-up call, I think, or should be a wake-up call to older generations. I think because the right has fallen off a cliff, we have been incredibly fortunate to suddenly have invitations to go and talk to an investment bank about our data-driven strategy to talk to pharma. These have not been traditionally allies who have funded this kind of work. We've had a chance to talk to, to corporations that are, I think it's important to do time off to vote for their workers. And we also, of course, are talking to folks that no one ever tried to, community colleges, trade, technical, and vocational schools. And so our money, still not significant as a share of our budget, is partly in large part from individuals like everyone listening to your broadcast. That is the bulk of our money, but we have been able to get funding. For example, we got almost a million bucks from Salesforce and Tableau Foundation because they were gonna fund what you're gonna see on our website, civicinfluences.org, the data-driven research that shows what young people care about and how they vote. So those maps and the visualizations that are fun to play around with on our website, that was because we got money from a corporation that allowed us to invest in collecting data, analyzing data, young people helping us collect data and analyzing their data, young people telling us 
what they cared about and why they cared about it and how they want to vote, and then allowing us to visualize it in a way that they can share on their campuses with each other in any which way they want. And that has made the difference. So our money, again, is mostly individuals who care about this, who care about their kids, who care about their grandkids, who care about their friends' kids, who are going to four-year colleges or trade technical and vocational schools, and then a few foundations and a few corporations that are coming. But that mix is changing. And what our hope is, what our hope is, is that everyone who cares about a young child, everyone who cares that our democracy is not a marathon and it's not a sprint, it is a relay from generation to generation. And when we have evildoers, <laughs> when we have a right that is literally one to cut off young people from our democracy and end that relay race right now, you should be supporting a young person organizing on any and every campus or in their home environment, in their community center, because that is how we maintain our democracy and make it more inclusive. Are you working with some of the other groups that are doing the same thing, Maxim? For example, the student public interest research groups, which I and others helped start, New York, California, Massachusetts, Florida. They have voter registration efforts on campus. I'm sure Bishop William Barber's Poor People's Campaign have volunteers on campuses and with young people who are not at colleges or community colleges. What's your network like? So yes, and I have to say this. I love everyone you just mentioned. I love Neil Rosenstein. We get funded by, by the Puffer Foundation. I love Washington Perg. I love Florida Perg. I love William Barber. He was on the board of NAACP when I was a senior vice president of the NAACP nationally. The problem is people have not been focused on young people, young diverse people young marginalized people, young low-income people. So to the extent there was any organizing of young people, you're talking about Yale, Harvard, Northwestern, you're talking about Georgetown, you're talking about Swarthmore, Oberlin. No one ever talked about the community college, the trade school, the vocational school, the technical school. And we need to broaden where young people congregate, where young low-income people congregate, where young people of color congregate tribal campuses, tribal community college, like the Pueblo Community College in Colorado Three, where Lauren Bobert won. And that college alone can swing any election if they were organized. You're very right. Most people who focus on four-year colleges have no idea that there are 1,300 community colleges in the United States. There isn't one congressional district that doesn't have a community college, for example. And we're talking about millions of, many millions of students, and they have been bypassed. So your concentration on them is very much warranted and can really tip elections. Now, Steve and Hannah join the conversation. Steve, do you want to pitch in here with Max and Thorne, executive yes. director of the group civicinfluencers.org? Yes, I do. Um, Maxim, uh, this is great. It seems like the issues that uh, you're identifying that the young people care about tend to be progressive issues. In your work, are you encountering young conservatives? I mean, people who are influenced by the Ben Shapiro's and the Tommy Lawrence and the Jordan Peterson's of the world. Is, is there any people who want uh, to preserve the status quo and the capitalist system? And are you encountering resistance there, encountering those people and encouraging them too? Here's what's wonderful about Gen Z. They reject binaries. 
they, I mean, whether it's sexual preference, sexual identity, um, whether it is Democrat or Republican, conservative or libertarian or right or left, they reject it, right? And that's from all. So we can see from, you know, the answers to polls and focus groups, they are leaning democratic, leaning progressive, leaning green, leaning, what are the priorities, right? But they do not adopt the frames of, of previous generations. But here's what is absolutely clear across almost everyone that we're talking about, 18 to 29 year olds. They are way more progressive on every issue than previous generations. It is remarkable. And there's one other thing that I'm, I'm happy to share with you on, on that question. And I'm, I'm going to say happy. I'm ecstatically happy. Every generation, think about, you know, old TV shows like Family Ties. You, there's always like the Michael J. Fox character and people are going to get more conservative as they get older, right? That has been a trope in our country. It is not true for millennials and Gen Z. It is not true. It is. It is. It has been a, a paradigm shift that we are not seeing older millennials and the people that have shifted to becoming a majority conservative or more conservative the way other generations have done. And why is that? And how do we? And how do we then capitalize on this commitment to a less racist, more equal, more inclusive democracy? And it's because their experiences are not like any other experiences that any generation has had. Kindergarten people getting, sh kindergarten kids getting uh, violently attacked and dying. Um, uh, mass shooting at high schools, mass shooting uh, at colleges. Re people in college today in Michigan 7 had Oxford shooting and then Michigan shooting. It, it's like, Literally, your experience from one shooting to the next in your school career, or you think about, and I think you would like this, Ralph, think about Maxwell Alejandro Frost from Florida 10, a Gen Z person who's 25. We gave him before he won our highest award, our power award last in 2020, in 2021, um, which we call the Cool to Consciousness Award. Listen, listen to this new member of Congress at 25. There was the Pulse nightclub massacre of young gay people and their friends and allies at the club in Orlando. Then there was uh, uh, the Parkland shooting at the Marguerite Stoneman Douglas High School. And this year, and by the way, this guy, community college, Valencia Community College, and driving Uber, you know, gig economy, which isn't going to pay much, much of his bills. And he's a black Cuban immigrant adopted child. This is the reality of this generation. It is the most diverse generation in America. They have grown up with these issues of climate change in Orlando, mass shootings at a gay club and at a high school. They have a gig economy that doesn't provide healthcare. All of these things become a part of their identity and why they are rejecting um, the ways of the past so that they, they could create a better future. And by helping them now connect that to voting and then making it easy to vote is our secret sauce that we hope everyone gets on board. And people like Maxwell Alejandro Foss are often the people that no one, even progressive organizations are organizing. 
They're not going to community colleges. They're not going to trade technical and vocational schools. And we are. And for $500, that's what we give them every term, including summer. So it's fall, spring, summer, fall. That's all it takes to get them involved and and understanding because they're upset about mass shootings and police killings. And they're upset about flooding and power grid issues and blackouts. But now we just need to be there to help them say, now, you want to vote on this? You want to see who's actually addressing your issue? And that makes all the difference. That's uh, another way of saying it is uh, these young people know they all bleed the same color. Hannah? So I'm I'm the resident millennial. And I mean, first off, I just I love everything you're saying. And it rings so true. And my experience and what I kind of have looking back on on my generation, I'm a recovered nonprofit employee. And I've seen a lot of really like passionate civic energy get siphoned off into the nonprofit sector. And I think we were told really aggressively that civic engagement was really synonymous with political engagement, that if you were in college or if you were in your community, if you wanted to try and change laws, you were kind of told, well, that's politics. And if you want to make real change about real issues, you go to all these little nonprofits. And that's really where you can make a difference, which is a very American thing. So I'm curious how, if that's the case with Gen Z, and if if you've developed any strategies to combat that kind of siphoning off into the nonprofit industrial complex of that civic passion. It is such a brilliant observation. I want to connect it, Hannah, to something that Ralph said earlier about allowing Gen Z their own power, their own power. I found it very galling, and I don't know if you agree with me, but after after we actually had Biden's executive order on the student debt, and we had, for the first time, some movement on, in addressing the environment, the president, Biden, and others were busy thanking each other, thanking congressman this, and thanking senator that, and thanking, are you serious? I mean, I had to get my message out, which is, The only reason we are addressing climate change today is because for young people, for the most part, it is their number one issue. And the only reason we finally were paying attention to student debt is because young people were advocating for it. And you should be thanking them. And the only reason we finally got some beginning to get some addressing of gun violence and gun regulation is because young people demanded it. And you were not thanking them for maintaining that momentum. So we wanted to make sure you shift that momentum the next time any of you give a speech about we've made it, we've made progress on, on gun violence, we've made progress on the climate. Thank you, Gen Z, and thank you, millennials. Because when you look at the boomers and the Gen X and so forth, they were not making those their primary issues. So getting young people to be thanked and publicly also helps build their sense of power and what they can actually do to affect change. And to what you said, Hannah, also, it is very tiresome to always be told, vote for someone else to do it. If you have these values, you have those skills, and you have swung that election, why don't you swing it for yourself? Why don't you swing it for each other? You do not need me. You do not need these other people to make the arguments that you are more than able to make, and we're helping equip them to do that, and hold yourself out as the viable candidate. And look at what AOC did. Look at what Maxwell Frost did. It it is amazing. They took on previous governors, previous highest ranking people in Congress, previous Congress people, and they all won and won big. 
And that story needs to get out. And we need to begin to empower, equip, and thank this generation of folks like you, Hannah, who have actually brought us to a better place than some of the others have done in the past. I, do you agree with that, Hannah? I think galling is a is a polite way of <laughs> phrasing it. Yeah, it, it's interesting that, you know, our grandparents were the greatest generation and and we're criticized for, you know, buying coffee on our way to work and told we, you know, we're, we're too sensitive. You know, it's almost like they're trying to keep us from claiming power or something, which I'm sure isn't the case. Yeah, no, okay. we're on radio, so... I won't use stronger language. Okay. Calling works. And now Maxim has a question for Ralph. It just had some feedback. What could I have done better? <laughs> and I'm very serious to be punchier to, or to get the message across. Because you've been doing a lot. Yeah, of you know, you, you're about the first person and we interviewed who's ever asked that question. <laughs> so I would suggest a couple things. Spend a little bit more time on how they're being ripped off and denied health care screwed over in the whole credit economy, gouging landlords, unable to get Medicaid in a lot of these southern states who are turning down federal funds, and the prospects for the economy for young people with automation and AI, that's on their minds too. They know a lot more about AI than we do. I would focus on that, and I would suggest climate change was a, a name created by a Republican party wordsmith in 2002 when they were using global warming he said use climate change you know well that doesn't do justice to climate violence climate crisis climate catastrophe floods wildfires out of control hurricanes so i would suggest using a more ferocious description whether it's climate crisis or climate violence rather than a term that was created by a Republican wordsmith. You know, I grew up in New England, uh, Maxim, and climate change means summer, autumn, winter, and spring. (laughs) (laughs) I think if you go to my sister's recent book called You Are Your Own Best Teacher, she has like 50, 53 topics that youngsters need to learn about. And it's just two, three pages. It's very gripping and memorable. And and that that's my more fundamental answer to your question, that these are not topics that are current in the press, but they're topics that affect them all the time, and including the horrendous effect on the family and community of social media. So it's called I You really, Are Your Own Best Teacher by Claire I just, I just Nader. Pulled it up. Yeah, just pulled it up. I wish I had asked that question before I started. I love climate catastrophe. The thing that I think is so powerful about that is... It's like saying voter suppression. People don't know exactly what you're talking about. Our staff say in 2018, there was not a single one of them that lived at home. I don't know I have any staff that isn't living with their parents. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can't afford an apartment. And they see no prospects for, of affording an apartment. And so the, there are some really gritty things with real trauma, mental health services, all the stuff that I did not even, was just not even reaching the surface of 2016, is now a must in our budget to help you know, th- these young people, even though they're in school and they have families, we have to provide so much of, and one thing I should have said, uh, b- 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 but shared with you if, you ever, if it ever came up, when there was this market drop-off from four-year colleges, and Georgia is, a, is an amazing example, Georgia State University has five satellite community colleges, and there was such a market drop-off over COVID, even after COVID, and they couldn't get 
students, particularly, and in fact, one campus became all white, seriously, statistically all white, to get young people and young people of color back on these campuses. And they have like Somali, refugee communities, et cetera. And then literally, do you know what actually worked? They were shocked when all of a sudden some, some students, not, not the original numbers, but people start coming back because they had a partnership completely unrelated with food pantries. And the community colleges started serving free food. And the students came back so they could eat, not because- Yeah, that's right. Yes. 23% of community college students are food insecure. That's millions of students. You're right, you're right. By the way, in terms of references, we have a newspaper on Congress called Uh CapitalHillCitizen.com. It's in print. And you'll see a lot of good issues for campaigns on that. It's issues that the mainstream media doesn't cover. And then the Bonanza of Bonanzas is our winningamerica.net Zoom trying to educate the Democratic candidates last year how to landslide the Republicans, all the way from policies, tactics, language, rebuttals, and get out the vote. You can go to winningamerica.net, and it's all on there. So my general response to your question is broaden out into the political, healthcare, consumer, labor areas, big time. Because, you know, that, that's what affects them day after day, hour after hour. Exactly, exactly. And I'm glad you told me that because I, I have tried, but I'm still working on it. The abstractions aren't getting people. They're not connecting to the reality. And that when you're organizing under old forms, no, we have to do soup kitchen. The community college is now a pantry. And that connecting that and having access is how you get to young people and say, you know, is this the life you want? Is there a way to connect this with voting? I mean, that's that's what's made us, I think, so effective is because that kind of granular research and data, and we're trying to share it. But I'll tell you, the resistance is strong because our cost per vote is $1.67 versus these other people that are in the thousands. Because I'm not paying for a newspaper ad. I'm not paying for a cable TV ad. I'm not paying for television ad, right? These are $500 students and whatever we pay for, for coffee and Uber Eats or, or whatever. And that's how we're reaching them. And yet when you speak to Adam Schiff and you speak to the DCCC and all these other people, they're talking about, I need 1.5 million for a New York Times ad. I need 4 million to blanket the airwaves. There is no one, Hannah, am I wrong? Who the hell in Gen Z is going to cable TV and reading the, the paper printed version of the New York Times. I, on January 6th, my dad called me and goes, are you watching the news? Are you, wa- wa- turn on CNN, are you watching CNN? And I said, why on earth would I be watching CNN? And I had to go find the feed. And I was just like, no, why would I be spending my afternoon watching CNN? Sometimes I watch C-SPAN, but yeah, people don't. It's not, it's a different data stream. Yeah, and I'm trying to, expose the people who actually hold these pocketbooks to understand we are not reaching young people, but you know who is? Donald Trump. You know who's actually mastering uh, social media and craziness is is the right. The disinformation in Florida, the disinformation in the Latinx community on, on it is, is really, and the left seems to be, I have, I don't even know a good word to use, Hannah, <laughs> to describe how poor they are in reaching young people where they are, particularly young people of color. It's pathetic. It's really an offensive. I'm curious, actually, do you do any work kind of getting people to withdraw from like automatically aligning with the Democratic Party? I'd imagine that if if young voters had to be chased 
the Democratic Party might be a little bit more responsive. You know, if their big tent was made a little bit smaller. Great question. Might- I, and here's the answer. I don't have to do any work. When I talk about <laughs> yes. thing binaries, you want to have stop dead in your tracks. If I said who's Republican, who's Democrat, who's, the conversation has ended. They are offended. When we talk about issues you care about and, and overlapping identities and that is, and I love it. I it, Truly, I, I we have embraced this. They are issue driven. They are multiple issue driven and they don't hire, there's no hierarchy between caring about trans rights and caring about police violence. Those are connected and inseparable. And they don't think of that as, well, that's a democratic, that's a republic. No. And the way that we have seen the organic nature of this is then they try to find who is addressing it, who is actually addressing it. And then how can we help connect that to who's on it? But if you start with party first is the end of the conversation. You agree with that? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it does. It kind of sounds like taking some. I don't know if it's directly inspired by, but seems to follow in the footsteps of the success of the Tea Party. It's, you know, you're, you're <laughs> you <shall> say that. <laughs> no, what I mean, in, yeah, terms no, what of, you mean. Yes. in terms of tactics and being uncompromising, it's you see people for the past 10 years going, well, why don't I demand everything? So, and so that's Hannah, been happening on the right. And why not? You know, why not? I don't even want to say the left, but like, why not start demanding? One, one good way of getting their attention is to show how in neighboring countries like Canada and Western Europe, they have all these things that they're being denied. You know, <laughs> they have, not, they have that, family, family sick leave and insurance and all the rest of it. So, you know, if these countries can give young people this tuition-free education, etc., what about us? So that's a very powerful argument. We're supposed to be land of the free, home of the brave, eh? So you give them that comparative approach, Maxims, it's quite important. You can make I'm a list trying. of about eight or nine things yeah i'm trying well we I'm have trying. to we have to get going we have to wrap up the show <laughs> I, got it. And I just want to um, just, just want to say something else that that hopefully resonated with you we changed our entire branding you will not find red white blue and purple you see our lightning bolt it was about the power grid that was hacked so there's the civic power grid and then there's the actual power grid both the civic power grid was hacked by the Russians it tried to affect our elections and the power grid the electric power was also hacked by the by, by the Russians so we've tried to really move away and embrace how this generation is thinking in a completely different way Ralph if you could figure out given what you just said how to speak with a generation of Latin ex folks about those kinds of things and not be called a communist and socialist and all the rest and get the conversation derailed. So we spend a lot of time with segmented conversations because it's so different talking to say, you know, African-Americans in New York and, and or Albany, Georgia or Latinx in El Paso or in Miami-Dade. And those kinds of conversations are theoretically good on a national level, but then get derailed when you're dealing with discrete groups of people on the ground in different communities. Yeah, it's true. Well, there are people on the ground like Jim Hightower in Texas, and mm-hmm. nobody can talk to regular Texans like he can. I don't right. know if you've heard of him. He, he's been around for years. Yeah. yeah. There are people like that, and they're underutilized, you know? Totally. The Democratic Party doesn't call them. They're all surrounded by these political and media consultants who have corporate clients. The Democratic Party, you can't get through the force field. It's like a force field to get through the candidates in 2022. 
you'll see it all on winningamerica.net. Thank you, Ralph. No, I, I think that'll be very helpful to you. I appreciate it. Thank you all for having us. We really, we really appreciate it. And I, I hope that NPR and everyone listens to it because we have been seeking to get our message out. And, you know, as you said, unless you have corporate interests somehow wedded to this, they're not interested. Yeah. Well, listen, the ombudsman for PBS is a great guy. His name is Gonzalez. And that's the way you get on PBS. Just complain. He, he was an investigative reporter for network TV in LA. And now he's in the Washington area. And then on NPR, go to Lila Fidel. She's a new producer and anchor there. Lila Fidel, F-A-D-E-L. Okay. And uh, Gonzalez has been there for two years, at least. Anyway, Gonzalez is good, though. Thank you so much. Finally, Ralph comments on more listener feedback. Then there's one that came in from Susan Eldridge. Please also interview Pavlina Tishaneva on her book, A Federal Job Guarantee, and how it would benefit society and even the playing field between employers and employees, end quote. Thank you very much for that, Susan. We'll follow that up. Geraldine Granger has this to say. I listen to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour every Saturday as I'm cleaning my bathroom. I truly appreciate the information, which I do not find elsewhere. Plus, these topics fill me with such anger that my bathtub gets the most thorough scrubbing, end quote. <laughs> Thanks for that one, Geraldine. And then there's Charles Gallagher, who says this, quote, Nobel Prizes in Economics started in 1969. The U.S. has won 61 times. The next highest number is England, with nine. During that almost exact time period, there's been, according to the Rand Center, a, quote, transfer, end quote, of wealth of approximately $50 trillion from the bottom 90% of the people to the top 1%. The people of the United States can't take any more Nobel Prize winners, end quote. And then there's one from Walt Dill. He says, quote, well, of course, the credit card is a standard contractual equivocation that the bank reserves the right to change the terms of interest at any time for any reason without explanation, according with their determination of rate or credit worthiness, a clear and illegal prerogative, since it's a, quote, credit, end quote, card, period. You might be interested in our effort to save and protect and defend legal tender, namely cash and checks on that point, Walt. Jane 99, that's what she calls herself. Quote, of course, higher minimum wages tend to reduce employment levels, and the author denying this is spouting sheer nonsense, end quote. Really, Jane? By your logic, if you reduce wages down to a dollar an hour, you create an employment boom. You go much below that, and you create a slavery boom. Do you ever think of turning your argument around to its essential logical outcome? Over the decades, as the minimum wage was raised, it increased consumer demand for goods and services, which led to expansion of the economy, which led to expansion of labor. So please don't swallow this right-wing propaganda that they profit from with tens of millions of low-paid workers who are getting less now in real inflationary dollars than workers got in 1968.
Time now for In Case You Haven't Heard with Francesco DeSantis. For the first time in 20 years, Israel has attacked the Janine Palestinian refugee camp, the New York Times reports. Less than two weeks earlier, far-right Israeli Defense Minister Itamar Ben-Gavir went on record saying, quote, we have to settle the land of Israel and at the same time need to launch a military campaign, blow up buildings, assassinate terrorists. Not one or two, but dozens, hundreds, or if needed, thousands, end quote. This brutal attack has reignited international outcry against Israeli apartheid, including from the United Nations, but few expect the Biden administration to impose serious penalties in response. A group of congressional progressives is speaking out in response to the White House's decision to transfer cluster munitions to Ukraine. In a statement, this group wrote, quote, Cluster munitions have been banned by nearly 125 countries because of the indiscriminate harm they cause, including mass civilian injury and death, end quote. The statement also notes that the administration is circumventing clear directives from Congress restricting the transfer of these weapons. The statement was signed by Reps Pramila Jayapal, Barbara Lee, and Ilhan Omar, among other progressives. Per Ryan Grimm of The Intercept, on the other side of the aisle, Matt Gates, the dissident House Republican, has committed to co-sponsoring the amendment to bar the transfer of cluster munitions. One hopes this left-right coalition can expand and stop this move. The Verge reports that Microsoft has won the first round of its legal battle with the Federal Trade Commission. The FTC sought a preliminary injunction to prevent the tech giant's acquisition of the video game conglomerate Activision Blizzard. This ruling follows, quote, five days of grueling testimony, end quote. Despite their victory, Microsoft still faces an antitrust lawsuit. In Guatemala, an electoral crisis is unfolding. Shocking results in the June 25th elections put Bernardo Arevalo, a progressive anti-corruption candidate and son of former left-wing president Juan Jose Arevalo, into the second round, defeating the daughter of former Guatemalan dictator Efrain Rios Montt and setting up a showdown with the former first lady, Sandra Torres. However, a coalition of nine right-wing parties have filed a lawsuit to suspend the results, setting far-fetched allegations of fraud. The Organization of American States is urging the Guatemalan authorities to reject the lawsuit because, quote, the mission verified that no serious irregularities were revealed and that no significant changes were registered with respect to the preliminary results of Sunday, June 25th, end quote. This from Reuters. The sports pages of both the LA Times and the New York Times took major hits this week. According to the Sporting Tribune, the LA Times, quote, will no longer have box scores, standings, game stories, TV listings, or a daily sports calendar, end quote. These changes were reportedly made to accommodate new 3 p.m. deadlines following the sale of the paper's printing press. At the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal reports that the Grey Lady is planning to close its sports desk entirely and instead rely on The Athletic for their daily sports coverage. This is, quote, part of an effort to further integrate the publication it bought for $550 million last year. A wild story in Variety alleges that Warner Brothers Discovery CEO David Zaslav made a crooked bargain with GQ's editor-in-chief Will Welch. The terms? In exchange for burying a GQ story critical of Zaslav, Welch got a plum position as a producer on a WB film. If so, Welch likely violated the Society of Professional Journalists' Code of Ethics, which states reporters and editors should, quote, avoid conflicts of interest, real or perceived, and disclose unavoidable conflicts. Common Dreams reports that President Biden has nominated Elliot Abrams to the U.S. Advisory Commission on Public Diplomacy. 
Abrams, a lifelong neoconservative war hawk, has admitted to covering up information in the Iran-Contra scandal and ignored reports of the massacres in El Salvador in the 1980s. Abrams later called U.S. policy in El Salvador a, quote, fabulous achievement, end quote. Listeners may remember a heated confrontation between Abrams and Rep. Ilhan Omar when he was nominated as a diplomat to Iran and Venezuela under President Trump in 2019. According to the Financial Times, quote, Elon Musk's Tesla has joined Chinese automakers in pledging to enhance core socialist values and compete fairly in the country's car market after Beijing directed the industry to rein in a months-long price war, end quote. While Elon Musk, one of the richest men in the world, clearly does not hew to core socialist values, it is a marked turn from his previous comments on the topic, including tweeting that, quote, Karl Marx was a capitalist, end quote. We recommend you take a break from Twitter, maybe read a book. And this has been In Case You Haven't Heard. And that's a wrap. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour when we are joined by our resident constitutional scholar, Bruce Fine. Until next time. Stand up, stand up, you've been sitting way too long. Thieves in the temple, too much money changing hands.